We're thankful for Claude and Debbie and their work in the prayer team. They're doing great work. Amen. Good to see you, man. Good to see you, sir. All right. God is good today. And um, there's something about the name of Jesus. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time lifting up his name before I do a simple prayer, okay? Thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the grace that you've extended to us. Thank you for being our Lord, our Savior, and our King. We look to you in every situation and circumstance of life. And we ask you today to touch our hearts. Let your word enter into our hearts and bring increase in our lives. Bless the pastor and the words that he's about to share with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, several years ago, I was wrapping up law school, and at the end of law school, you take the bar exam. Uh, And all your time in law school, all three years in law school, are dedicated to preparing yourself for one exam, one test that you get at the end of three years, and that will determine whether or not you become a lawyer. Uh, So three years, you're studying for this test, and then the summer before the test, you're spending all day, every day, cramming for the test. And uh, there are some of you that have crammed for that very test out there. Uh, And I crammed for the test here in St. Louis. Uh, God would get up in the morning, had a study group, went to a class. They had like a cram preparatory class that you could take. Um, Study all day, eight hours a day there. Then go to the coffee shop, sit down with other guys, work through the questions, do practice exams, dream about it, think about it, eat it, sleep it. Then you drive down to Jefferson City and you take the exam. So we drove down to Jefferson City, me and some of the, some of the guys that I was taking the, the test with, and everybody stays in a hotel, and then there's a big sort of banquet hall, I guess. It doesn't feel like a banquet. There's no food. There's just, uh, there's just a test sitting in front of you. Um, so we all go down to this hotel. Everybody's trying to get a good night's sleep. People are anxious. People are worried. You know, it's a big deal. So everybody went to bed. About 4 o'clock in the morning, we hear, meep, 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 meep. Someone pulled the fire alarm. False alarm, but we all come walking out of the room like, what's going on? You know, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. We have the bar exam tomorrow. You know, the one we've been studying for for three years. So people are wandering around. You can just see sort of a dazed glaze over everybody's eyes. Eventually, everyone sort of shuffled back into their, their rooms, fell back to sleep, got up the next morning. People are groggy. People are, you know, a little bit freaked out. Um, I went in, sat down. You bring your own laptop to this test, okay? And I had been using the same laptop all through law school, and it was my battle axe. It was just a great, you know, it just got me through. So I sit down with this, this computer, open my computer, and I start taking the test. No problem. Just, you know, I'd studied, I'd prepared, ready to rock. Going through it, and, it, and my computer started acting a little bit weird, okay? I mean, it wasn't really weird, but it was just kind of weird. So just kind of going along, whatever. We get to lunch. I called one of the IT guys over. I said, my computer's acting a little weird. He gets on there, looks at it, and he says, oh, yeah, you need to defrag your computer, he says. You need to defrag it. You need to defragment it, whatever. 
Our media team can tell you I'm not a tech guy. I don't understand technology. Uh, but nevertheless, I go, okay, so he said, all right, we'll defrag it. So he starts pushing some buttons, and he said, by the time you get back from lunch, it should be defragged. You should be good to go. So I said, great. So I went to lunch, came back, and then when you're defragging your computer, there's a bar across the bottom, and it says how much you've defragged from 0% to 100%. And I came back from lunch. We're about, you know, two minutes from starting the test back up, and my computer had defragged about 4%. Um, and I go, uh, excuse me, uh, tech, technology personnel, uh, please. So a guy comes over, and I say, you know, look, my, I'm defragging, you know. And he says, you're defragging in the middle of the bar exam? And I go, yeah, your guy told me to defrag. He goes, you don't defrag in the middle of the bar exam. That's crazy. It takes hours to defrag. And I go, okay, can we undefrag the computer? Because uh, in about 120 seconds, uh, you know, my life's on the line. He somehow stops the computer from doing what it was doing and says, okay, you should be okay. The test starts. I'm back on the, te- I'm back on the computer. First problem that comes up, I know, I know how to answer this problem. And I just bang out as fast as I can the answer. But the problem is none of the characters are appearing on the screen. I'm pushing the buttons, but there's nothing on the screen. Suddenly... All the characters that I had punched in the last 30 seconds appeared on the screen at once, like this, brah, right? But, you know, there was like a couple typos and grammatical errors way back in sentence one and two, and I couldn't get back there, right? So I'm panicking now, okay? So I'm getting tech guys, they're coming, and it it came down to this. You just have to muscle through, man. You either take the bar exam or you don't take the bar exam. So I just basically closed my eyes and took the bar exam, all right? And the long story short is, I did pass the bar exam. But if anyone ever would look at the transcript of my answers, I would never get hired because they would say, this guy can't spell, can't type, can't talk, can't... He's got bad grammar. So, thankfully, I passed the test. All of us in life have tests that we have to undertake in every aspect of our life. We are coming up against tests. They're either explicit tests like this law school exam or they are more implicit uh, tests like there are tests in a relationship. You begin to form a relationship with someone and whether you know it or not, you're sort of testing each other. Do I trust this person? Does this person trust me? Is this person going to betray me? Is this person a good person, right? In our jobs, we have tests. We have a, generally have a probationary period when we get started, and if we pass that test, then we may be moving up to see how well we do, and then we can advance depending on how we do in the test. Um, military has tests. Every, every area of life, we're being tested. Today, we're going to be talking about a very, very huge test that our sort of spiritual forefather, Abraham, went through. And before we jump in to that, Um, to that uh, text, I want to just say this. Tests are generally for two purposes. One is to determine whether you are prepared to advance to the next stage. So a test is a determination to see whether you are prepared to move on to the next stage. But the other part of the test is to actually, the other purpose of a test is to prepare you to advance to the next stage. So the purpose sometimes of giving a test is not only to, to see where a person's at, 
But sometimes we give a test to get the person to move up to this level so that they can advance. Do you see what I'm saying? And I think in this story, God is doing both. I'm calling this the test. This is the story, a haunting story, a difficult and challenging passage in Genesis um, where God tests Abraham. So let's jump into the story. I don't know about you, but this evokes some lively discussion in our life group. And um, I'm I'm excited to talk about it with you this morning. Genesis 22, uh, we're going to go 1 through 14. Let's start here. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So already we get from the premise, we get God is testing Abraham. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is the first time we see the word love in the scriptures. Whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is probably the most, if you take it seriously, now some of us have grown up in church, we know this story, but if you take this passage seriously, this has got to be one of the most stunning passages that you could ever imagine in the scripture. God, an all-loving God, is telling a man to offer his son his only son that he loves as a burnt offering. So we, we stop immediately and we go, what is happening here? To any one of us who has a child, a niece, a, a sibling, a friend with a baby, we go, this is crazy. We're, we're in crazy land here. Like who tells a person to sacrifice their child? Um, as I mentioned earlier this week, we were, yesterday we were, at the memorial service of a beautiful baby girl, Addison Elizabeth Williams, and 16 months old. And thank God that her parents are people of faith. Thank God that her parents are people who have hope in the resurrection. Otherwise, it just would have been crippling to imagine what they were feeling. Because what you sense in that room is a deep connection, a deep and loving connection between parent and child. And so this story just hits us like, you know, right like a ton of bricks as we examine what could possibly be happening. And some people have asked the question, I mean, is God being cruel in this passage? Is he, is he, is he vengeful? Is he some bloodthirsty God that wants someone to kill their child? Um, this passage has been so troubling to Bible commentators over the years that they, many of them have taken great pains to try to soften the blow of this story. So an 11th century commentator, for example, argued that, that Abraham actually misunderstood God and that God was just saying he wanted a symbolic sacrifice but not a real sacrifice and because the, the commentator just couldn't fathom the idea that God would do this. Another commentator from the 14th century said, uh, you know, it's a, it's a misunderstanding in the scripture. It was actually Abraham's imagination that led him to think this, but God wasn't really doing that, you know. Uh, And then another commentator um, years later said uh, that what in fact was happening is that God was trying to show the people of that period, many of whom routinely uh, engaged in human sacrifice. He was trying to show them that he abhors human sacrifice, which he does. Um, But all of these are attempts to try to somehow figure out how to handle this difficult 
story. Um, I want to take just a few minutes to put this moment into context, okay? Uh, First of all, this kind of thing happens once in the Scripture. This is the only time in the Scripture where you will ever hear God tell anyone to sacrifice anyone, all right? This is the only time it happens. It happens to Abraham. God was, if we, if we you know, go back a little bit earlier in the earlier chapters, God was forming a covenant with Abraham to launch a nation through which God could make himself known to the world. It was going to come through this guy, Abraham. And so God was putting Abraham not only through this test. This is the last. Some, some scholars say this is about the eighth test that Abraham had undergone through the education period of what it's going to mean to be the leader of and the founder of a great nation, a nation that honors God, a nation through which God reveals himself to the world. So this happens once. It happens to a particular person, a very important person. Um, And in fact, we learn in Leviticus uh, that God absolutely abhors human sacrifice because it was going on in that region. Uh, people were offering their children to, to Molech and on these different, you know, uh, regional deities. And God absolutely abhors that. Um, and then the other thing I just want to point out, too, is that in these tests that Abraham was undergoing up to this point, he wasn't always faring so well, okay? We think of, fa- I mean, you know, I don't know if you had the Father Abraham song when you were a kid, but, you know, it's like, it's the one that you use to wear your kids out because they march on one foot and then the other and they swing their arms, spin around, sit down. A, if you don't know it, you should learn it. It's a great song. Um, so we think of Father Abraham. We think of him, father of the faithful. He's, you know, God's man on the earth. He's, we've got a covenant with, with, with God. Um, amazing hero of the faith and all this. But what we sometimes forget are all of the instances of his failures along the way. Now, he sometimes succeeded, but he sometimes failed. And I want to just tell you a couple of the sort of tests that God put him through or that he sort of put himself through even uh, in the preceding chapters. One is this, and, I, and I, this one I find to be incredible, and, I, and I, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they were, they were then called Abram, but God changed his name, um, and Sarai, or Sarai, uh, they, God changed both of their names, but I'm going to keep calling them Abraham and Sarah just for clarity. Before all of this happened, they were married. They were undergoing, there was a, there was a drought in the land. There was a famine in the land. So they decide to go to, to Egypt to get some food. On the way to Egypt, this is an, this is an awkward conversation, husbands. I, this, I'm just going to warn you. Abraham turns to his wife, Sarah, and he says, you know, Sarah, you're very, you're very beautiful. You're a very beautiful woman. So far, we're good, right? Uh, he says, uh, you know, we're going to Egypt, and it's likely that those Egyptians are going to find you really attractive. And if they find you really attractive, they may want to take you as their own. And if they want to take you as their own, and they know that I'm your husband, they may want to kill me. So here's what I want you to do, Sarah. When we get to Egypt, just tell them you're my sister. Don't tell them you're my wife. Just tell them you're my sister. That way, they won't hurt me. Okay? 
Husbands, don't do that. Um, uh, so they go into Egypt. And sure enough, the Egyptians say, wow, she's pretty stunning. Uh, we would like to have her as our own. Abraham, no problem. She's just my sister anyway. No big deal. Don't need to harm me. Oh, and by the way, you know, as long as you're taking my sister, how about um, maybe some oxen, maybe some cattle for me, maybe some sheep, maybe some maidservants, some manservants. Maybe, you know, we'll do a little dowry exchange. Yeah. Abraham is allowing the Egyptians to take his wife. Pharaoh ultimately takes his wife in exchange for some wealth. Okay. This is a man, this is not the father of the faithful yet, all right? This is a man who is self-interested, not interested in the well-being of others, not holding up the dignity of his wife, not really behaving like the founder of our faith. This is a guy that we don't respect at this point, all right? Now, that would be bad enough if that happened only once. That happened twice. That also happened when he went into the Philistine territory and he... And King Abimelech also found Sarah attractive. And again, he said, no problem. She's just my sister. You can have her. And in that case, Abimelech takes her into his harem, then discovers that, in fact, she's married to Abraham and says to Abraham, and this is not a God-fearing king, Abimelech, comes to Abraham and says, what are you doing? What are you doing giving me your wife? This is you know, you're going to bring great sorrow and distress upon our people because you've set me up to commit a grave sin. Take your wife and, you know what? Take some cattle and some oxen and some sheep. And Abraham is now out there making money by offering up his wife as his sister. I mean, this is... This is so, so all that to say, God was teaching Abraham. God was leading Abraham to a place where he could found a nation, where he could become the founder of a nation, where he could be the father of the faithful. And I won't get into all of the other problems that Abraham ran into, but he ran into some other ones because one thing that we know about him is that he desperately wanted a child. That's the one thing that through all of his craft and all of his you know, sort of willingness to nudge the rules, uh, he couldn't do on his own. And Sarah was not able to have a child. And in fact, at one point, Abraham goes to one of his handmaidens and has a child with her. And he's trying to sort of get God's, uh, to tr- trying to hurry up God's plan. Because God had promised to, to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Your children are going to be like the sand of the sea. They're going to be like the stars of the sky. And you will be a, a, a leader of, of great nations and your people will bless the whole earth. Okay. Um, and so Abraham desperately wanted a child. This is all background for this one sentence that I'm trying to explain. Um, so we, got, we cut to several years later. Finally, miraculously, Abraham and Sarah have a son. This is the one thing that Abraham has desperately wanted all of his life. This is the one thing that he hasn't been able to get on his own. This is the one thing that was purely a gift from God. And this is the one thing that potentially could become an idol for Abraham. This is the one thing that could potentially take the place of the relationship between Abraham and God. He may be 
disposed to love his son more than God. And God is trying to carve out a nation to manifest himself to the world. So that's why (laughs) he says to Abraham, I want you to do this. So we cut to verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning. This is right after the command. Saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, so they're traveling three days. This isn't a, this isn't a sort of, you know, immediate sort of idea that he could immediately execute. He's walking three days. He's on a mule and they're going three days. Uh, Abraham rose early. In, uh, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I want to stop for just a second here. What is fascinating about this verb tense, if you will, is that Abraham tells his servants, the boy and I are going up to the mountain and the boy and I will be coming back. Now, we know that God had just told him to sacrifice his son. But when Abraham tells these men what he's doing, he tells them, we're going together and we're coming back together. Hebrews 11 you know, we, we, we look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham, the reason that he was able to do what he was asked to do is that he knew and had faith and believed that God would raise this child back from the dead. Now, that hadn't happened, but Abraham believed that that's what would happen. God would not take away this child and not, replace, and not bring him back. Um, so... Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. Stop just briefly there just to say, Abraham, if you do the math, reading the story when they moved, Abraham was somewhere between 20 and mid-30s. Abraham was not a little child. I'm sorry, Isaac. Yeah, not Abraham. Uh, Abraham was... Much older. He was in it over 100. Um, Isaac was somewhere between 20 and mid-30s. So what we find as as we sort of peel the layers of this story is that this Isaac, this son, was a willing participant in this sacrifice, if you will, in in this act of worship to God. And I love, and if you read this story carefully, you will see that these are images. You remember a couple weeks ago I said every story is essentially a story about Christ. Uh, You will see Isaac is carrying the wood for his sacrifice to be sacrificed up a hill. Okay, to be sacrificed. Think of, you know, what we just talked about. Jesus carrying the cross up Golgotha. So, So Isaac is walking up a hill with the wood on his shoulder to become a willing sacrifice for God. Verse 7. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood. I see the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Again, we have this beautiful image that I believe points to Christ. We have a a child of promise in Isaac, a child of promise in in Jesus. Both of them have unlikely mothers. Sarah is over 100 in the story when she gives birth to Isaac by, you know, a, a miracle. You know, the story of Jesus is that Mary was a virgin and also a very unlikely mother. Um, both led up a hill to be sacrificed. Both evoked this, this uh, theme of substitution. Um, and, I'll, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, both demonstrate love between a father and a son. Um, both instances where the father are, is willing to sacrifice the son. Um, and so, you know, both, both, in both cases, Isaac and Jesus, obedient to the Father. So the, the themes are amazing through this story when we read through it. So we go through verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood uh, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. This is the moment where all, everyone's, everyone stopped breathing. Abraham raises the knife. Um, Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. I want to just say very quickly, there's actual knowledge and there's experiential knowledge. You can know something in your head, but... It's something else to know it through your experience, okay? You're, 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 I can tell my, my wife that I love her, and she knows that I love her, but when I show her I love her by taking her and spending time with her or buying something nice for her or doing something with her or for her, she experiences the love that she already knows. God, does, God knows what Abraham's going to do, but this test is as much for Abraham as it is for God to prepare Abraham to make that complete and total acquiescence, that total surrender to God, total trust, total faith in God. Verse 13, and Abraham, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And then that's, that's where we'll end that passage. It's an amazing story. And of course, you know, this, this, the, the difficulty of the passage is the command. Um, and then we all breathe this sort of deep sigh of relief when we go, oh, he didn't have to do it. You know, um, God didn't call, it, call him to actually follow through with it. So I just want to take a couple minutes and, and talk about some of the themes that are evoked in this um, story. And one of them is this. Obedience to God results in joy. Obedience to God results in joy. When I was a kid, we had a guy that we lived out in the parsonage in, in kind of, we lived in Ohio for a little bit and we lived in a parsonage and there was a, um, the church. And then there was this huge tree between our house and the church. And there was a guy, his name was Skip Wright. And he was a, uh, part of what he did, he was a tree trimmer. 
And he would go out and trim trees and lop off big, huge parts of the tree. And I'll never forget, I was a little kid, maybe six or seven years old, and Skip Wright was up in that tree, and he was all strapped in, and he had a chainsaw. And my dad was out there, and some of the the guys from the church. And I was a little kid, and I was really excited to, you know, this seemed very cool and adventuresome. And I go running towards the tree, and, you know, the, the guys are on sort of standing behind on the other side of the tree. And I heard my dad's voice, and my dad says, Brent, stop! I mean, it was like a loud sharp, harsh sound. And I stopped and I look and, you know, all the guys from the church are looking at me and my dad's looking at me and he's got this look on his face. And, and I didn't really realize what was happening, but I, I just, I was startled by how sharply and how harshly he had spoke to me. So, so I got really upset and I turned around and I ran back home to my mom and I was really upset. And so my dad comes home a little bit later and he goes, uh, what's the matter? I said, you know, you, you, you yelled at me. <laughs> you know, in front of all those guys, you, you yelled at me. And he said, Brent, Skip was up in the tree with the chainsaw getting ready to cut a, law, cut a big tr- uh, limb off. If that thing had fallen on you, that would have killed you. You know, I, I was terrified that you would run in the tree, under the tree. Sometimes God's commands to us they're not, they may seem harsh. We, we listen to the scriptures and sometimes it, it sounds very intense. But I want to just say that God's commands are directed at bringing us joy. They're directed at our well-being. They're directed at keeping us safe. They're not directed at just, you know, binding us and, and stifling us and not letting us grow and not letting us develop. They're designed to encourage, I mean, if you want to hear me raise my voice, just see if one of my boys start running towards the street. And you're going to hear a loud voice come, come out of me. Because if you love your children, you want them to obey because it's good for them. It's right for them. It brings them safety. It brings them peace. It brings them joy. Um, John 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He says, obey me because I want you to have joy. I want intimacy and I want joy. That's what he's saying. Um, The next sort of theme I think that we, we draw from this story is that we are, is that trust in God produces strength. Trust in God produces strength. Any relationship of any value or any merit whatsoever of any depth requires trust. I was counseling a young man a long time ago, and uh, he was with a girl that he liked very much. And the problem in the relationship is that the girl did not trust him. Uh, And I spent a lot of time talking with this young man and determined that he was not doing anything that should merit her distrust. He was being a very upstanding guy, being a straight-up guy. But something in her heart kept her from trusting him. Uh, And, you know, when it's okay if you don't trust someone that is proving to be untrustworthy. But when someone is proving over and over to be trustworthy, then at some point... You've got to trust. 
because that's the only way intimacy grows. Um, and when it grows, that's when, you know, by, by making that step, by taking that step, by not being terrified to trust, by, that allows the relationship to blossom. Uh, James uh, chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's he saying here? He's saying that these trials, these difficulties, these hardships are directed at bringing strength to us. They are directed at at fortifying us, steadfastness in our life. We undergo these tests, we undergo these trials, not, not for fun, but to become strong. The trees planted in the water, by the water, that's what we are called to become. Strong, steadfast, people of strong faith. And that's what we're called to become, and that's what we're called to help others become, ultimately. Um, some of you may have seen this already. Some of you, you know, most of you probably will hear it this week in the news. Um, that Rick Warren's son, I don't know if you've heard this, but Rick Warren is a, is a, is a pastor out in California, and, and he's a well-known um, pastor, uh, and his church, there's 20,000 people or something like that, and he's a pretty influential you know, voice in the Christian community. And his 27-year-old son um, took his life this weekend. And so the challenge for that family going forward is going to be immense. Um, and it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, and God is calling all of us to trust him. Um, even when the circumstances don't make sense to us. Uh, there's a pastor down in Nashville that I like. He says, the Christian faith is a beautiful tapestry of verities and mysteries, truths and paradox, things that we can grasp things that we cannot quite grasp because we are finite creatures. We are the created. He is the creator. We are finite. He is infinite. His ways are above our ways. And there's a certain humility that we have to, <laughs> we have to surrender to in our life if we're going to be able to move forward and say, God, I can't fully comprehend your ways, but I trust you. I trust you. Um, Trust God with your mistakes. And what that means is if you've done something or said something or thought something, and, and all of us have, that we deeply regret, Scripture says he's faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. Trust him that he's big enough to take care of and resolve and wash away your mistakes. Trust God with your relationships. And what I mean by that is, some of you have children that you're praying for and that are not leading the life that you hope that they would. Trust God in that relationship. Some of you are, you know, dating or interested in finding someone for your life and it might be difficult and you sort of stop and start and things aren't going the right way. Trust God with that. Um, friendships, trust God. Spouse, trust God. Trust that God, now that doesn't mean that you don't, because you also have to obey. We have, we have to do our duty. But there's a certain point after which we don't have control. You know? And we say, God, I have to turn this over to you. Trust God with your relationships. And then trust God with your future. 
This is an area of anxiety for almost everyone at some point. They're either regretful of their past or anxious about their future. And I want to say, trust God with your future. Okay? He's got it. That word provide, when, 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 he, when, uh, when, uh, he said, when Abraham said, God is the provider, Jehovah Jireh, provide, that word pro means before or in advance. Vide, videre, means to see. God sees in advance of your need what you need, and he's going to take care of it. God is the provider. Um, and that leads us to the f- final point that I just want to touch on. God provides for those who seek him. I don't, you know, the, I am a person who likes to have his hands on things, who likes to do things. I like to do it my way. <laughs> and it's hard for me to relinquish and trust God. It's hard for me. Uh, that's a, always been a challenge, and it might always be a challenge. But, you know, this church, when, when we finally swallowed the lump in our throat and said, okay, God, here we go, um, we're going to do this, and by the way, we can't do it alone. Um, when we finally gave ourselves over to God and trusted him, I cannot tell you the kind of amazing provisions that we experienced. Um, and I won't, don't have time to get into all of it, but I mean, things would unfold that we just couldn't have orchestrated on our own. That, you know, I'll just tell you one quickly, this theater, you know, we wanted to be in this theater, but this seemed like, imagine before we were here, this just seemed like a total long shot. I'm a guy coming down to the Tivoli saying, hey, we want to have church in here, you know? And I thought they would go, you're a lunatic. And P.S., we had tried every other place that we thought we could get into. This was like, we're not even going to try because there's no chance. And I think by God's provision, you know, I walked in here, talked to the management, and they go, that sounds like a great idea. We'll shoot you over a contract in the next couple of days. What's your email address? And I'm like, wow. God provides. God provides those who trust him. So I want to encourage you, trust him. Trust him today. Matthew 7 Seven eight says, "Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened." Praise God for His provision in your life. I mean, all of us have struggles. All of us have pains. All of us have problems. But just for a moment, let's praise God for the provision in our life. Those things for which he's already provided. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the sky above. Thank you for the sun that warms us. Thank you for the stars that twinkle in the night. Thank you for the shelter above our head, Lord. Thank you for the breath that we breathe. Thank you for the body that got us here today, Lord. Thank you for our friendships. Thank you for our relationships. Thank you for our church community. Thank you for the love and intimacy in our lives, God. Thank you for all of the many blessings that you have poured out to us. Thank you, God. Thank you. We thank you, Lord. When we do that, it shifts everything. We start to focus not on our need, but on what God has already blessed us with. The multitude of blessings in our life. I love the song that we sing, and I'm going to close with this. I'm running a little late, and I apologize, but I'm going to close with this. 
I love the song that we sing where it says, Lord, I thank you for the morning. Lord, I thank you for a brand new dawning. Lord, I thank you for another day to sing your praise. I thank you for your blessing. Right now, my heart's confessing. Lord, I thank you for another day to sing your praise. I like the line where it says, every morning when I wake up, I cannot help but to see your goodness and your mercy, Lord, are always following me. If you will really stop and take the time to acknowledge it and notice it, you may find that God is in pursuit of you. You may find that he's coming after you to love you, to bless you, to honor you. And if you'll trust him and obey him and thank him, I think it will radically alter your life. I know it has for me when I, when I, when I do it, um, and I know it will for you too. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your provision. Thank you for the story. It's difficult. Uh, we, can't, we can't grasp all of it, especially in one sitting, Lord. But we pray that you will open our hearts to you. We pray that you will bring uh, your comfort and peace into our life. Lord, for those that are in our congregation right now that are struggling, help them, Lord. Bring them peace. Let them focus on you. Let them focus on Jehovah Jireh, our God, our provider. Let them focus on what is important, God, and all the many blessings that you have given us. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to worship. We thank you for the opportunity to praise you. We thank you for the breath in our lungs, God. And God, we give you our hearts today. Help us to go forth today and show your strength and your love and your mercy towards those who are in need. Help us to be your body on the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 We could talk about the Abraham story for a couple more Sundays. um, But we won't. We'll come back to it. We've got we've got some years to get through this stuff. All right. Um, this is a time in the service where we worship in various different ways, and I want to invite all of you to come and worship.